Welcome to Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. I'm Dr. Carla O'Dell, CEO of APTC. Thank you for joining us. Today we're going to be talking to Larry Prusak. Larry is a longtime friend of mine and, and of APQC. He's a researcher and consultant and was actually the founder and executive director of the Institute for Knowledge Management, which was a global consortium of member organizations who were advancing the practice of knowledge management through their own action research. Larry has had extensive experience within the U.S. and internationally on helping organizations work with their information and knowledge resources. He's taught in 25 universities internationally. He's keynoted for APQC's Knowledge Management Conference, and he was what he was co-author with Tom Davenport of what I still think was one of the earliest and best books on knowledge management, which was called Working Knowledge, and I recommend it to everyone. So, Larry, just delighted to have you with us today. And in the two decades that you've been thinking about knowledge management, at least the two decades I've known you thinking about it. Um, You've covered about every topic one can think of, and I got very intrigued when we ran into each other a month or so ago, and you uh, told me about your current interest in the concept of wisdom. So why are you interested in wisdom, Larry, and how does it, what does it look like? What do you mean by that, and how does it relate to knowledge? Thank you, Carla. Nice to hear your voice. Nice to be on your program, on your this little um, show, so to speak. Uh a number of years ago, Robert McNamara died, former Secretary of Defense, former head of Ford Motor Company, a whiz kid, very young professor at the Harvard Business School. Uh, I had occasion, actually, to see him and chat with him once because we, he had a very large house in Martha's Vineyard, and I had a very small house there, but I'd see him on the ferry. And when he died, I was reflecting on his life, that he was a man who was extremely intelligent in an analytical way. I'm sure his IQ could equal everyone's on the ferries added up, but he didn't have any wisdom, and he knew it. He knew his life had been um, in great error, and he was a tragic figure. Uh, someone made a movie about a documentary called Fog of War, and I began thinking about this, that you can have tremendous knowledge, tremendous analytical skills, and not have wisdom, and the world just suffers for it. Then the financial crisis hit, and you know, here we have the best and the brightest. From Harm, I'm in Boston, from Harvard and MIT. I go to those schools sometimes to talks, meet with teachers. Super smart graduates. Sixty to seventy percent of the graduates of both schools, both MBAs and economists, go to Wall Street. And what do they do? They almost take down the American, the whole world economy. Much knowledge. Can say they didn't have knowledge about finance. No wisdom. So I began to think, you know, knowledge is a very useful thing. I went to the dentist yesterday. My dentist has deep knowledge about fixing teeth. He did it. I'm very pleased. We work with NASA. NASA has extreme corporate knowledge, greatest in the world, about interstellar flights, wonderful to work with. However, it's not enough. It's not enough to build a great society. It's not enough to sort of save mankind from itself. And we really suffer from a deficit of what I call practical wisdom. So that's how I began to get interested in this. What's the second part? Of the guys? I'm not taking notes, Carla, because I like. Oh, that's okay. The uh, when what, you, what did you ask next? Oh, yeah. What What do you mean by wisdom, Larry? This okay. Given some very intriguing examples. What do you mean? Well, first of all, the classical Greeks, who I have great admiration for, had eight different words for knowledge, sort of for knowledge. 
One of them was called thronesis, which means practical wisdom. That's what I'm talking about. They had other words for spiritual wisdom, the, the wisdom of maybe Jesus or Confucius or Buddha. They had another word for the love of wisdom, Sophia, we get philosophy from. Uh, gnosis, which is sort of a spiritual type of wisdom. But practical wisdom was wisdom in the world, acting in a way in the world where you act for the present and the future at the same time and you act as if your actions have consequences to the benefit of others. Practical wisdom. We're talking here about at the highest level, Mandela, Lincoln, Gandhi, just to pick three people I sometimes use, Shackleton as an explorer. I mean, it's not always at that high level, but if you're trying to give a quick analysis, people like that. Practical wisdom, wisdom in the world. Franklin Roosevelt, perhaps. Winston Churchill, to some degree. People like that. I got very interested, and I really reread Aristotle, even learned a little Greek carefully, and began to see, boy, there's not much written about this stuff. Little bits here and there. I worked at the Harvard Business School for oh, off and on for seven or eight years, never heard that word said, not once. Um, so we, we were elevating to the people who run our companies and run the country what I would call puzzle solvers, people who are very good at solving technical puzzles, technocrats, and often they have a great deal of knowledge of economics, of social policy, things like that. But without wisdom, the world doesn't improve that much. Somewhat, but far less than it could. And since wisdom is, is it's a word that people particularly don't like hearing or it's hard to measure, certainly difficult to teach, we just sort of ignore it. And we have the consequences in front of us in terms of climate change and many other things that are coming our way. So, Larry, I hear you saying that one of the things that sets uh, people apart from who may be experts and technocrats and highly intelligent from those who have wisdom is that the well, first, the outcomes affect others in a positive way. But yes, I that's definitely one. Yeah, short-term and long-term, or maybe long-term may be the better case. Is that fair to think? The yeah, both, short and long-term, right. So You act with the shadow of the future. You, that's what Aristotle said. You act with the shadow of the future in front of you. So you so think, what am I doing, and how will that affect others in the future? Do you have evidence, Larry, that these folks, and these were fabulous examples you gave, actually were thinking in, in the present about how their actions would affect those in the future? No question in my mind. Absolutely none. Okay. Absolutely so, none. So that would mean then, even though uh, an expert, which we're very interested in here, is expert knowledge, uh, experts may have a lot of technical knowledge, but the complaint I hear is not the one about wisdom, because I don't think we talk very much about that. The complaint I will hear about those around them in the organization is that they don't have a, have a lot of social intelligence or interpersonal. Well, yeah. That's not I the guess, thing at all. No, that's not what I'm talking about, although well, I, I would think, say, go ahead. I feel too, I, I would say, Carla, that um, one of the hallmarks of people who have practical wisdom, are they have epistemic humility. They're not dogmatic. They're open to ideas. They don't think there's only one way to do something. Now, some of these are tough cookies. And, you know, Gandhi wouldn't have gotten India liberated if he constantly listened to every idea possible. 
But they have an epistemic humility. Read about them, and I can name quite a few others. I don't want to just hold up to the same clan. These people are all around us. It's not just they're in NASA. They're in organizations. Frankly, your husband is probably one of them, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, they're, all, they're around us. We can In politics and society, people we know, we all don't have to be Mandela or Gandhi. But epistemic humility, which is a little different than social intelligence, so I certainly am a great fan of people who are civil and know how to act. So let me continue to explore this, because I think this is a really deep and rich topic. How does one become... Uh, <laughs> Let's assume that that's a desirable goal, and I think there's reason, certainly historical reason to believe that there, it is. How does one cultivate wisdom? Uh, what a great question, Carla. If I only had an easy answer to this, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm, not, I'm just not sure. I would, again, I'm still reading about this as much as I can. There isn't that much to read about. I'm trying to learn about talking to people about it. I think we could teach it more. I think we could teach more. Well, for example, let's say we started teaching economics as a system, not as a transactional point, but a whole system where if you do A, it will affect B, C, and D. We do life in an ecological model. Kenneth Goulding wrote about this 50 years ago. He was absolutely right. Viewing things that have consequence. You do something, and it affects a lot of other places, a lot of other people. That would be one way to start. Another way would be to teach in a pluralistic manner that you may think you know the absolute truth about something, but it's unlikely. <laughs> We're not talking about science here. Even there, I think you can make an argument that there are different approaches. I mean, uh, we're talking much more about being pluralistic, having some humility, and understanding that almost all of life is systemic. You do A, it affects B, C, D, E, and down the line. That would be a beginning teaching things like that, and then we don't. We don't teach it in the schools. We don't teach it in graduate schools. And businesses don't act that way. And they have, you know, oh, sorry, again. Well, that you, I think you're bringing up a very interesting point. If, it, if one of the characteristics of these folks is that they're humble and that they're open to new ideas, you can expose them to how not all the ideas are the same. And that's part Absolutely. of what you're talking about training. And I guess travel is a... Uh, broadening experience has always been Absolutely. one of the ways that people used for that. I, I don't mean to be partisan here because I'm really not, but when I heard when he was running for president that George Bush had only left the country three times, I was deeply discouraged. I don't think anyone should be president or should run something, a large company or run something like a country without deep exposure to the world. You have a, a very good point, Larry, about exposure to many different points of view in the world. So let's bring that back to the current state of most of the organizations that you and I work with uh, and APQC's members are global organizations. They're yeah. global. Yeah. How might that be affecting uh, how wise we become? Um, and again, I know this is something we're we're all inventing as we talk, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, well, let me give you a live example. So I do a lot of work, you know, Professor Nonaka, who both of us know, uh, he was on the board, he may still be on the board of Fujitsu, which is a very large Japanese electronics firm. And they have a whole global wisdom program for their executives, where they move executives around, around all of Asia and in the United States and South America. Not so much to uh, give them, make them more cosmopolitan, 
but to give them, no, maybe it is cosmopolitan, give them alternate points of view, get them to understand that there's not one truth to things, that people are different, and that the differences you can learn from and then create your own point of view. They're actually trying to do that with the aim of inculcating wisdom in their executives. I'm actually, I teach in that program. So that's one way to try to do it. And I think these global firms, many of them are trying to do it. They might not use the word wisdom. They might say cosmopolitan or global or having a worldly point of view. But I think those are aspects of practical wisdom. Mm-hmm. So you're saying one of the ways we can foster and benefit from the wisdom of others is by expo- uh, foster it in ourselves and others is to um, expose ourselves to multiple ideas from lots of different places. In a global organization, what better way to do that than moving people around? Are there other ways you see it? And that's terrific that Fujitsu is doing something like that. What Do you know of other organizations who are, uh, whether they call it wisdom or not, know the benefit of a plurality of, of voices and the need to be aware well, of consequences? DuPont does this. In fact, do you, do you know Liam Fahey? I think you might. I do, yeah. Yeah, he's doing, he's doing a program for DuPont that is somewhat similar to this. They don't use those words, but he's very interested in the subject, and he's putting it into their curriculum, and it's somewhat similar. I suspect there are other firms doing it, too. I'm just not aware. I did some of this for IBM, not when I worked there, but just fairly recently, but it's fallen on penny pinch in time, so they discontinued it. But I I would bet dollars to donuts that um, a lot of this goes on in Asian companies. Um, Asian firms are a little more interested in this stuff and a little less short-termism than perhaps the U.S. or the U.K. Uh So I think they're doing this too, but I I can't swear to it. So when we talked at the very beginning, it was about you would – you know that someone was wise in hindsight, for sure, because right, of, right, right. the consequences uh, that that ha- you know the consequences of their decisions. Uh, it sounds like by exposing people to more points of view and other potential consequences in places they might not normally think about, you know, another country, right. that they start to almost do their own little simulation of what would be the consequences of my actions or my decisions. I think that's true, Carl. That's exactly right. You know, one of the things I do in Fujitsu is ask each of them to think for a while and come up with someone they know in their working life who they think has practical wisdom and analyze what it is they do, what about them leads them to pick them as having practical wisdom. And people look, you know, they're a little... So what do you mean? No one has wisdom in my group. But after a while, they think of it, and many people then pick their father or their grandfather, Japan being a very patri- patriarchal country. But I've tried that in the U.S. I've just recently gave a whole talk in Lexington, the town I live in. I gave a talk on this. And I asked people to think about that, and quite a few picked their grandmother, teachers. So it's all around us. We're not, so I just don't like to always you know, hold up great men or great women so to speak. I'd much rather uh, people think about people around them. You don't have to be wise all the time, but it's certainly a good idea to elevate this rather than, you know, the constant elevation in our schools from kindergarten through Ph.D. level of analytics and puzzle solving rather than wisdom. Mm -hmm. I think one's more important than the other, although I'm certainly not a 
We need those other things. But wisdom is an integrating force. It integrates knowledge. It integrates values in a way that makes this stuff valuable for all of us. That's a beautiful way to put it, Larry. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but I want to thank you for bringing up a very important and not often discussed topic, which is wisdom. Oh, thank you, Carla. And, um, and for joining us on Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. Uh, Anytime, Carla. It's nice to hear your voice and hope we run into each other one day soon. Oh, I hope so, too, Larry. Thank you. And I'd like to thank our listeners. And if you'd like to learn more about APQC, please go to our website, www.apqc.org. And have a great day. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.